was your relationship to Halloween growing up? Did you dress up and stroll the neighborhood knocking on doors, shouting, trick or treat? Or did you go car to car in a church parking lot, picking up a mix of candy and evangelistic tracks at the local trunk or treat? Maybe your family skipped all riffs on the fall festival by marking Reformation Day instead, the day Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door. American Christians today hold a wide variety of views on how best to spend October 31st. Some view it as a harmless day for costumes and candy, while others worry it's an invitation of evil into our lives. But have you ever done a deep dive into the religious and cultural history of Halloween, especially the treats part of the phrase trick-or-treat? The background of this holiday may surprise you and transform the way you spend the evening of October 31st this year. Welcome to Kitchen Meditations, a weekly podcast from the Edible Theology Project, where we examine the ways God meets us in the kitchen and at the table. I'm your host, Kendall Vanderslice. If you are hungry for a taste of God's hope and healing in the mundane tasks of your everyday life, then you have come to the right place. May these meditations bring you a bit of grounding as you prepare to eat today and every day. Kitchen Meditations is made possible by a generous community of donors. We here at the Edible Theology Project want to thank all of you for your support of our work. If you haven't given to our fundraiser yet, we would love you to consider joining us in bridging the communion table and the kitchen table with a one-time or monthly tax-deductible donation. To learn more, visit www.edibletheology.com fundraiser. Let's get started with a little spiritual mise en place, a prayer to orient ourselves before we begin. In the professional kitchen, mise en place is the process of preparing your workspace for the dishes you're about to make. It involves measuring your ingredients and reading your recipe all the way through so that you can focus your energy on the tricks the kids are playing at your door. I like to think of it as a time to prepare my own mind and body as well, asking God to be present with me as I cook or as I bake. Our spiritual mise en place today is drawn from the first letter to the church in Corinth. Slow your breathing, and now as you breathe, repeat with me. Inhale, O death, and as you exhale, where is your sting? When I was a senior in high school, I had a beloved blue and white checkered dress. Every time I wore it, someone commented that it reminded them of Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. I also had a habit of wearing brightly colored heels, including one pair that was red. When Halloween rolled around, my friends and I decided that we would go all out in Wizard of Oz attire. We had a lion, a tin man, a scarecrow, a couple of munchkins. One person even dressed up as Toto and stuck her head between my arms to look like she was sitting in my basket. My family lived in St. Louis at the time, and in St. Louis, people take the trick part of trick-or-treat quite seriously. That is, you must perform some kind of trick in order to get your treat. Most children memorize a joke and tell it again and again at every house. That particular year, my friends and I decided that we should take things a step further. 
Every time we rang the doorbell, we burst into song and dance. Or, well, skip. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. I hadn't always been allowed to celebrate Halloween by going door-to-door for candy. For starters, my family didn't really eat sugar when I was growing up. It's no surprise, I grew up to become a pastry chef. But like many good evangelical families of the 80s and 90s, we were taught that the day was a celebration of Satan, and we ought to stay far away. Instead, my parents drove us to a local church's harvest celebration, where the Sunday school rooms were filled with games and the gym was packed full of inflatable bounce houses and obstacle courses. While the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s might have died down in recent years, arguments about whether or not Christians ought to participate in the holiday continue to this day. I'm guessing you've heard at least some of them before. Less common, though, is an acknowledgement of the Christian roots of the occasion, especially my favorite tradition, trick-or-treat. The primary argument against celebration of Halloween is that it started as the Celtic tradition Samhain, what some claim to be a holiday celebrating the Lord of the Dead. The evidence is pretty sparse that Samhain actually served this purpose, because the category of satanic didn't really exist in the pre-Christian Celtic imagination. The Irish focused more on the fantastic than in dark powers. In reality, the festival was used to mark the onset of winter and the shortening of days. Paying attention to the shifting of seasons is vital for agricultural societies. It was even more so in the pre-industrial world. Winter is a season of death, the death of crops and trees. It's a reminder of the never-ending cycle of life. And so the shifting of the seasons was a time to honor those who had passed away. They would light the night sky with fire to help guide their loved one's spirits back home. As Christianity spread across Europe, the church integrated existing folk traditions, using festivals that marked the shifting of seasons as a way to tell the story of our faith. Like Christmas and Easter, Halloween was one such merged tradition. In the 8th century, Pope Gregory IV established All Saints, or Hallomas, as a holiday in the church calendar a day to honor the many saints whose feast days weren't already fixed. The holiday began, like Christmas and Easter, with a service the evening before, on Halomas Eve, or Halomas Een, or, as we know it now, Halloween. Christians have long marked the reality of death through artistic symbols, or memento mori, which translates to remember your death. As we're reminded every Ash Wednesday, it is from dust that we come, and it's to dust we will return. The temporal nature of our earthly lives reminds us that we also exist in a global and historical communion of saints, the family of God that is unbound by the limits of time or space. And the tension between our earthly temporality and God's eternity We honor and pray for the dead who are now in the presence of God, and we ask that they intercede for us as well. Throughout the early Middle Ages, the poor would go from door to door on Halloween, offering prayers of intercession for each household's deceased. In exchange, they would receive a cake marked with a sign of a cross. A soul cake, as it was called. Soul, soul for a soul cake. I pray, good mistress, for a soul cake, they'd sing. 
One for Peter, two for Paul, three for him who made us all. Up with the kettle and down with the pan, give us good alms and we'll be gone. In time, the practice became known as souling, the precursor to our modern day trick-or-treat. Turns out when my friends and I sang, we're off to see the wizard, we weren't too far off from this historic Halloween practice. Some medieval churches marked all souls with a parade of relics, items associated with particular saints, like a piece of a veil said to have belonged to Mary, or a splinter said to have come from the very cross on which Christ died. Those who were too poor to pay for access to relics would dress up instead, not as ghosts or witches, but as their favorite saints. While these practices offered methods for the poor to participate creatively in the holiday, and in the case of souling, to be fed, there was, no doubt, a good deal of corruption that was intertwined in these practices of the church. Some prayers for the dead served as a request for intercession by the dead to God, but others served as prayers for the souls of those who might still be in purgatory being purged of their sins before entering heaven. In order to shorten a loved one's liminal time, a family member could receive an indulgence on their behalf. Initially, the receipt of an indulgence required a series of penitential acts, including prayers, confession, and the viewing of relics. It was meant to recognize the due punishment of the sin that Christ had already forgiven. But by 1517, a monetary payment to the church was considered enough. The church was raising funds to rebuild St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. Horrified by the corrupt practice that preyed on faithful Christians, Martin Luther chose Halloween as the day to nail his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church, a common destination for pilgrims on All Saints. Like the Festival of Carnival or Fat Tuesday, which takes place in the spring, Halloween is a ritual of subversion. The shifting of seasons creates a liminal space where norms are suspended for a short period of time. The subversion of norms helps to reveal deeper truths about the way things are. Martin Luther played right into this practice of subversion when he nailed those theses to the door. Perhaps the evil that you fear, he warned, is coming from inside the church. Perhaps your corruption today actually dishonors the faithful saints who've gone before. Some Christians would say that we must avoid Halloween because it is a celebration of death. In actuality, the avoidance of Halloween, or of All Saints Day, suggests a discomfort with the reality of death. I might even go so far as to say it reveals anxiety over the unknown. We can proclaim in bold faith that Christ has conquered the grave. But the truth is, we don't know the exact mechanics of what will happen when we die. Our finite minds cannot comprehend an eternal existence outside of space and time. We are, for now, rooted in our earthly home. Much of American culture today prefers not to contend with the reality of this unknown. Instead, we avoid the topic of death altogether. We speak little of our ancestors except to say, oh, they're in a better place. We live as though we are already unmoored from time and space, independent of the people who came before us and those who will come after. We fear the darkness of Satan in an abstract sense, 
but we overlook the powers and principalities that corrupt us from inside the church today. Hunger for power and for wealth, fear of those not like ourselves, bitter division amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ. Perhaps this Halloween, it's time we lean into the holiday's subversive power, honoring the saints who have paved the way by passing down the Christian faith and learning from both their sins and their successes. We can reject Satan and all his forces, the power and the greed and the bitterness that divides us, and we can pray instead for the healing of the church and of the world. As for me and my house, we will make soul cakes and mark them with a cross. In each bite, we will remember the bread that unites across time and space. We will pray for our dead, and we will pray for the church. And we'll dress up and hand out candy to all of the kids on our street. In our joy and in our hospitality, we will remember that life is fleeting and that God is good. Inhale, O death. Exhale, where is your sting? Our kitchen tip today is for those who want to participate in some of the historic Christian traditions of Halloween, but don't quite know where to begin. If you are able, I highly recommend attending an All Saints Vigil, a late-night service on Halloween. You'll hear the stories and prayers of faithful Christians throughout the ages, remembering our ancestors in the faith. If going to church close to midnight is not in the cards for you in this phase of life, then consider spending the day making soul cakes. You'll find a recipe in the show notes. As you lay down each raisin in the shape of the cross, think of a different person in your life, dead or alive, who has shaped you up to now. It could be a family member or a close friend, or it could be someone that you've never even met before, the aunt who raised your mother, or the friend who introduced your parents to one another. Thank God for the role each person has played in making you who you are today. You can enjoy the soul cakes on your own or with your kids, or if you want to be the house that gets odd looks from all the neighbors, You can even try passing out soul cakes instead of candy this year. Maybe you'll even help the practice of singing a song in exchange for a treat pick up steam again. At least, one can hope. And now, to close. A prayer for the unity of the church, this all saints. God who is behind and before all things, you are not bound by the limits of space or time. Yet you called us each to the time and place in which we were born. In every bite of bread, remind us that we are inextricably linked to those who've gone before and those who will reside in your world long after we are gone. Protect us from the powers and the principalities of greed, of violence, of polarization that harm and divide your beloved creation. Make us instead instruments of peace passing down your love to the next generation. Amen. Kitchen Meditations is brought to you by the Edible Theology Project, where the communion table meets the dinner table. We encourage you to discuss this episode around the table with your spouse, small group, or friends. Need some help getting into that rhythm? Sign up for our weekly newsletter at edibletheology.com, and you'll get discussion questions and a recipe delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our intro music is by Josh Garrels. A huge thank you to my Edible Theology team who made this podcast possible. 
especially to our producer, Jason Rugg. We would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or Spotify, then share this episode with your friends. Your help ensures that others discover this podcast too.